Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. James D'Angelo, who is a professor at the School of Global Studies at Chukyo University. Very nice to speak to you again today. Hello, Chris. Very nice to see you again, uh, as always, and happy to contribute again to the, the um, Lost in Citations. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, and also thank you for the feedback that you gave us from our interview with uh, Dr. Nikos Sifakis. Um, it's it's nice to know that he is a, a former colleague of yours or someone who you've worked well, with. Well, just before. within the ELF hmm. uh, circle, you know, he ho he hosted um, the ELF conference at that uh, at his university in Athens um, six seven years ago, and I got to know him better at that time because, as you know, with conferences, you're going out to dinner with people and banquets, the, the good old days. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but I, I've and then you know I've been on panels with them from time to time, that sort of thing. Yeah, it was a really good interview. I hope I get the chance to um, well speak to him again, but also meet him as well. Like you say, in the old days, we used to be able to uh, travel and meet and discuss and you know spend time over mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a more in a more casual way. And I think that that's uh, yeah. sometimes a, a very useful environment to um, make connections. So the paper we're going to be discussing today mm -hmm. is World Englishes and Global Englishes, Competing mm -hmm. or Complementary Paradigms, mm -hmm. uh, a paper that you wrote with uh, Marzia Saragur and was published in June of uh, this year, 2022. The first thing I would say is that the title itself, World Englishes, is presented as uh, a real noun and Global yeah. Englishes is put in uh, single quotation marks. Mm -hmm. Your paper is uh, an overview of the description of you know world Englishes, English as an international language, uh, global Englishes. Um, although the names of the the key players like Catru mm. uh, and Smith and mm. um, uh, Jenkins and yourself uh, will be known to most, but um, basically, what what was the mm. background to this paper? Why did you think that uh, this was necessary at this point in time uh, of the development of world okay. and global Englishes? You want all the dirty details. Of that would be great. It, the murky background. Thank you for including me with Katru, Jenkins, and, and myself. It sounds like I'm moving up in the world. But it, yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, originally, well, you know, global Englishes, I did put it in the uh, scare quotes or the single quotation marks because uh, it's a fairly recent paradigm that's emerged fairly recently. And uh, in some quarters, it's not fully accepted yet. And this paper was actually originally written a new volume. I think it's maybe a five or six volume series is coming out, edited by Kingsley Bolton and others. I think it's the um, Wiley Blackwell Handbook of World Englishes, and it's going to be quite a huge collection. And I think it's due out in the spring. And I wrote three different things for Kingsley, but this particular one, he asked me, I, I know he's not so fond of the term um, global Englishes, so I was a little surprised that he asked me um, to write this and ultimately um, decided not to include it. And But I felt it was important because, you know, these paradigms, people are confused to some extent about what are the differences, what are the similarities, where are the overlaps? And um, so I thought it was useful to have, I wanted to have a very Actually, the original title didn't have the second half. Mm. And I added the part after the colon about the uh, competing or complementary pattern um, paradigms. But even 
even when I did my PhD um, in the, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, my advisors in South Africa, Bertus Van Rooy and his wife, Suzanne Kutsi Van Rooy, the working title for my PhD said something about um, similar paradigms, or I think I used related paradigms. And Bertus suggested that I say competing paradigms. But at that time, I felt they, they did work together. And, and after all, they're all looking at English from a pluricentric point of view. So, you know, although paradigms do compete with one another, I feel these are, are pretty much complementary. But in a sense, with uh, Kingsley Bolton not so keen on the global Englishist term, this is kind of a nod to him in a way that um, we, I think we need to still question uh, to what extent an additional term is needed in the field. Well, what, what is the concern with uh, the difference between them? Because in the same way that people who are not uh, in the field, either in mm. uh, linguistics or economics or mm. law, there is oftentimes a, a conflation of people who don't use these terms on a daily basis mm -hmm. between things like internationalization and globalization. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and so people who are not using these terms in their research mm -hmm. or have not done any uh, background work into them, global English and world English basically looks like the same thing. So mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the resistance from yeah. uh, people like Professor Bolton to global Englishes? Yeah, and I'll come back. You had asked me about the different players, and I'll come back to that. Um, I suppose it's that, you know, World English has a history going back to the term first appeared in 1985 in a volume edited by Randolph Quirk. And actually, there was something called the quirk Katru debate, and they were mm -hmm. at odds a bit. And Quirk is quite a, a purist <laughs> or a nativist. There, there's fascinating online interviews on YouTube of uh, Quirk being introduced when he comes to Japan by a Japanese professor also has the RP, you know, British English yeah. pronunciation. Um, but anyway, um, well, I, I think uh, yeah. at, at odds a bit is yeah. kind of underselling um, kind of the, the fundamental philosophical approach that Raj Carter and Randolph Quirk had to what English was. Mm -hmm. One was looking at as a, I, I would say, one is looking at it as a, a form of uh, uh, coding British history, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps even imperialism yeah. and the continuing of, of mm -hmm. the empire and a, a, a remnant of that, and someone who is looking at it as something that is a, a tool of, um, uh, you know, in, increasing individual mm -hmm. users, you know, access to the world. Yeah, and you know, Katru always said, English world English is, is not dependent on English being a global language. So almost in the spirit of Ryuko Kubota, mm. University of British Columbia, who, Columbia, who's, you know, somewhat critical of even things like world Englishes as being a neoliberal sort of, you know, still, you know, if you think about world Englishes, it's still the elites in Nigeria or India or the Philippines that really have a, um, can use English in a, on a daily basis in their work. Um, for Katru, you know, it was a, it's a bit strange. And Kingsley Bolton is kind of inheriting that legacy. And he's feeling that we don't need to call it global Englishes, you know, because we're even Katru world Englishes preferred the W to be a lowercase W. Mm -hmm. And it was more focused on the varieties of English 
and how they're used in a different context than English being a global language. Um, and I think global English is also, you know, it's trying to create it as an umbrella term. And Kingsley had originally pr proposed something called the World English as Enterprise. And at that point, he had English as an international language, English as a lingua franca, and World English is under this umbrella called the World English as Enterprise, which is what I used in my PhD thesis, which is on, um, you know, it's available as a PDF uh, through Google Scholar and things like that. So, um, but Jenkins, I think, felt a bit, she was threatened in a way anyway, because when English as a lingua franca first came out, several articles came out in Wiley Blackwell World Englishes, which um, Robert Phillipson said, English Frankensteinia. There was an article called English Frankensteinia. And um, Yamana Katru and Larry Smith uh, also wrote something critical about um, English as a lingua franca. And then many people misinterpreted her. Uh, she proposed the lingua franca core, which was mainly a phonological, you know, quite a helpful thing, actually saying certain phonemes were more important to distinguish than others. Um, but people tend to overapply that and say she was proposing lingua franca English as a variety such as Euro-English that could emerge at some point. So uh, I think Jenkins already felt she was being misinterpreted by the world English's community. And then she was actually looking forward to debate Katru. I think I mentioned it in the last interview in Regensburg in 2007, that Katru was ill and wasn't able to make it. But um, so I think she looked for her own um, umbrella term and she came up and you see, that's why her center in Southampton is called the Center for Global Englishes. So she went kind of full in on the global Englishes at some point, say around 2014, something like that. I think that probably comes from her background. When I interviewed her, she spoke about the fact that she was coming from the background of, uh, I believe, being a, a high school teacher, certainly below yeah. uh, undergraduate um, level. Mm -hmm. And as you say, I think her approach to it by focusing on core of phonology mm. was a pedagogical approach sure. to attempting to make um, English as as a world uh, language or an accessible language to people around the world mm -hmm. was to focus on the things that uh, like a shared phonology and from there wow. build out. So um, it, it, it may be a, a difference in the, the background of uh, uh, the people who are approaching mm. the discussion. Um, maybe hers is has become an academic approach, but I don't think it began there. Yes, yeah. And she was a phonologist, but yeah, like many people, she started as the English teacher. And, uh, you know, recently, I have a research student now from Myanmar, and in my new EMI major, some students from Nepal and other places. And, and really, there are times when intelligibility can be a quite a considerable problem so you know as, as david detterding i don't know if you've come across him he um wrote one book in the elf the english as a lingua franca series with mouton de greiter and his was about misunderstandings in elf so he sort of searched through all the uh, asian corpus of english interactions and looked for um, you know, phonology-based misunderstandings. And so, you know, from a world English's perspective, that seems like you're looking for errors, not right. looking for commonalities. But at the same time, you know, especially with my student from Myanmar, I really, uh, and, you know, she's working towards taking the IELTS test, which has an interview portion, mm. a speaking portion. And so 
you know, she's got to be able, she's got to be intelligible. So you, Jenkins core could be very helpful with that. I agree. I mean, uh, seeing if, um, Professor Dethling, I actually interviewed uh, one of his former PhD mm-hmm. candidates, Shamina Althea Gardner mm-hmm. from Bruno Dar es Salaam. Uh-huh. And we talked quite extensively about her background and the fact that um, Bruno Dar es Salaam uh, has a kind of British English base. Sure, sure, yeah. Similar to Singapore. Or Malaysia. Um, or and Malaysia as well. And how that affects uh, you know, the educational performance and, as you say, the, the rating of ability mm-hmm. relative to British English and, and RP. You bring up the, the, the idea of um, IELTS and testing. Mm-hmm. Just to make all of my biases clear, I am actually an IELTS speaking assessor. I see. And that is something that, and this is, this is not revealing anything that isn't publicly available, students don't have to achieve native mm-hmm. speaker standards in order to get a, a 100% rating on, or a 9 rating good, good. on pronunciation. But as you say, comprehensibility is a very important part. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so, this particular student, you know, she's almost very rarely hitting the final consonants and words after the vowel, and it makes it, you know, quite hard to... To, it's not so intelligible. Well, I always recommend in that in that case, mm. when I've taught IELTS courses in the past, is to reduce speaking speed. Yes, because oh, rate of speech is always well. It's it's difficult to, mm. to mm. moderate, particularly in high stress situations like when you're taking a test. Mm-hmm. So you want to answer the question. You want to get out all the information. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, waiting on the answer and letting letting it develop. As in normal speech is is more helpful, particularly from the perspective of the person who is rating you. Because I would say that all of the raters I work with, they want to assist the people who are taking the tests to gain their best grade. Mm. Um, we're not trying to trick anybody or to, you know, make things difficult for them. But um, uh, it it still is um, the student who has to perform so i, mm. I hope yeah, the, ra- the raiders are well. sort of trying to accommodate i'm sure yes to <clears> the <throat> student and give them the best possible possible opportunity to be understood mm. so but yeah, the speed is true that's why you know larry smith in his paper smith and rafik zad 79 mm. finds that japanese english is one of the most intelligible varieties and i think one of the reasons is that japanese do enunciate fairly slowly and so even if some phonemes are are or deviate too far from some sort of norm and especially where you have the epithesis you know some of my colleagues complain about katakana english but at least you are hearing that last vowel because you know the mora you know mcdonaldo having that vowel after the last consonant avoids that problem of um, you know the, the post post-vocalic, I'm not a phonologist, but I like to throw in those terms once in a while. It's a, it's a kind of, and also I find some students try to steer away from that and try to make katakana English more rhotic than it can ever possibly be. Oh. So but they will try and remove that last. So when they're talking about somewhere like Toronto, which is in and of itself almost 
an entirely comprehensible noun yeah, yeah. using katakana. They'll say Toronto. Mm. Yeah, why and, suddenly shorten it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you've got it. You've got you've got the perfect access to that to that word. Yeah. But they'll 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 take it off because they think it's wrong. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They think it really is Toronto. Yeah, and that and that they've been taught it wrong. Uh, um, may, may, do you want me to briefly talk about the key players that you had asked? Though it's um absolutely it's a, it's a nice legacy, you know. And in some of my PowerPoint slides. One I did at Sugiyama for uh, Jolt. I think Jolt has a SIG called College and University Education, maybe the CUE. But I have these nice slides that show, especially comparing sort of the pedagogy-related people coming from World English as EIL mm. and ELF. But uh, Larry, you know, Smith and Katru sort of at the same time in the mid-70s, late-70s were working towards Larry started with English as an international auxiliary language. He, he was looking for a term. He had E-I-A-L and E-I-I-L. And finally, he came up with E-I-L. And I think Sandra McKay came up with that around the same time. But then, you know, once Larry Smith started working with Braj Katru, they took over that uh, journal. World English is actually was called yeah, I forget the name before that, but when they took it over from the publisher, it had a different name. And Braj proposed uh, the World Englishes because he had started to develop that term around 1985 in that Quirk book we mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, but in a way, it's unfortunate that Larry was doing all this important work in EIL, which is very similar to ELF. You know, Jenkins and Seidelhofer will tell you there's really no difference between EIL and ELF except for ELF has built these very useful corpora, mm. like the voice corpus and mm -hmm. the ace corpus. And EIL might have had isolated, you know, people doing certain recordings and having data, but not building a large corpus. Um, but it's unfortunate in a way that Larry, then he went straight into the intelligibility studies, working with Yamana Katru and with Cecil Nelson. And Larry sort of abandoned his own work in EIL under the rubric of intelligibility studies. So it was left until many years later, not many years later, but maybe by the late 90s, I think Christian Christian uh, Meyercord came up with something on ELF. But then uh, you see also Alan Firth doing some papers that mention ELF. I, I, interestingly, Alan uh, studied under Larry Smith for a certain time at the East-West Center in Hawaii. Um, and then, but you know, but then Elf really starts to get picked up by Jenkins and Seidelhofer and, and uh, Kingsley Bolton actually mentioned in a panel in Cebu, uh, World English is 2007, that, um, you know, because he's from Europe originally and he had, he's British, but he had worked in Hong Kong, he'd worked in Sweden for a long time. And what he said was, you know, when after 9-11, when America made it harder to get visas for international students, a lot of them switched to London and to England. Mm. And Jenkins would have noticed um, all, just the way Larry did in Hawaii at the East-West Center where you know people from 20 Asian countries are talking to each other. Uh, Jennifer noticed all these people from around the world. And, you know, and so she used the term English as a lingua franca to represent that. Um, so it's, uh, it's been an interesting progression. And you know, global English is, again, doesn't really come out until because ELF um, gathered a lot of steam, it has its own journal, its own conference, 
And actually, a lot of World Englishes people accept Elf. You know, there was some initial resistance, but mm. the World Englishes community came to uh, ex uh, accept Elf because World Englishes didn't deal that much with the expanding circle. It mm. was mainly the, you know, nativizing countries, the former colonial powers, and even, you know, um, certain variations of English in the British Isles and, and things like that. Um, so, but in Europe, which was never, you know, mainland Europe was never really colonized. So uh, you start to see uh, lots of interest in international use of English, whereas world Englishes had only really dealt with intelligibility from that perspective. Uh, Elf is really looking at all these people from different countries. And, um, you know, Henry, Henry Widowson is a very useful scholar because he was already so famous and he's married to Barbara Seidelhofer, who works so closely with Jenkins. But uh, Henry has a way of summing things up beautifully and simply. And he said, world English is, is about the sociolinguistics of varieties. It, it's a parallel structure. Mm. And Elf is about the pragmatics mm. of variation. So he's got, you know, uh, sociolinguistics varieties for world Englishes, pragmatics and variation instead of varieties for elf because he talks about the online idiomatizing and there is no common idiom so these people with these different Englishes come together in business meetings around the world and they have their own idiom and so accommodation and negotiating meaning with one another mm. uh, becomes so important so um, the world Englishes uh, you you know community really has come to respect elf but they don't seem to have accepted the global english english's term yet and but this you know, this may come you know and within that so world english is accepting elf but not necessarily accepting either the the, the term or the philosophical background mm -hmm. to global englishes would you would you say from your experience that eil and elf can be almost conflated as a as a as a kind of shorthand to explain what the purposes of these terms are both you know sociolinguistically and perhaps even methodologically for, uh, for teaching the language yeah i think you know they're both looking at english as a function how, how do people work through the pragmatics and negotiate meeting when they come together with their different world englishes varieties so i think i think they can be conflated the only problem is some people start to say international english so mm. they start to use it as an adjective. And Larry Smith would always say, you know, he tells the story of the girl from Myanmar or wherever Indonesia comes up and said, oh, Mr. Smith, I'm looking so forward to study international English with you. Mm. And Larry says, well, you have to go someplace else <laughs> because he doesn't teach international English, which sounds like it's uh, airport air traffic controller English, you know, some, some neutral vanilla variety. But it's, it's a function, really. Yeah, we. This is something that I often have to not wanting to get into the philosophical weeds with my with my colleagues, mm -hmm. but especially when you're putting doing something practical like mm -hmm. putting together a curriculum or choosing a textbook and discussing how it's going to be implemented into the framework of the university uh, curriculum. And I, I wrote a well, I wrote a blog post that I'm writing out into a full paper that I. I termed it uh, broken English and the othering of 
varieties of world English. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've put up on the, I was, I, I gave it to a, a colleague of mine and she mm -hmm. read it and then she interviewed me for this podcast. And it's something that I note among people who haven't had uh, any background in sociolinguistics, mm -hmm. that if something is not identifiable as a British, American, Australian, um, English, or, or cannot be othered into a Japanese, Korean, Chinese, Singaporean, mm -hmm. Philippine English, then they, they term it broken and they ignore it. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things, one of the themes I wanted to touch on with you today, which is how to kind of explain this not in academic terms oh, and not necessarily using mm -hmm. a sociolinguistic meta language mm -hmm. that there is value, particularly if you're teaching mm -hmm. English um, as a foreign language in Japan to knowing some of the background to this. Are there any, I mean, of, of the many people who you mm -hmm. reference in the paper, mm -hmm. Are there any specific papers that you think colleagues of mine or colleagues of you know others who are listening to this who are in that situation mm -hmm. want to further this and support the mm -hmm. World Englishes movement that we could make available to our colleagues mm -hmm. to say, you know, if you've got a spare 15 minutes and a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. have a read of this. And, and I see, I see, yeah. is there anything um, that you think could be useful? You know, one of the best, I was going to suggest sometime you try to interview, you know, S.N. Sridhar, he's Katra's yes. brother-in-law. Mm. His chapter in the other tongue is the only yes. pe really pedagogy, the main pedagogy-related one written with his wife, uh, Mina or Kamal Sridhar. That, that's a great starting point on how, you know, traditional mainstream TESOL and second language acquisition theory needs to be uh, i think they call it uh, rebuilt from the ground up mm. was one one term he used um i i did a nice uh, piece for a book that was i'll have to send you some links when professor yoshikawa here retired i wrote uh, the first chapter in a fest shrift dedicated to him but i i was also going to recommend you know the things the some of these publications by aya matsuda she did one these are all with uh, multilingual matters, which mm. I'm sure you're familiar with. But this one is um, preparing teachers to teach English as an international language. And before that, she has one with an orange cover called Teaching English as an International Language. I, I have both. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, both of those have uh, the orange one has some lesson plans in the back. But I think this is even more mm. uh, full of lesson plans. And uh, are you familiar with this one? Language teacher education for global Englishes. I just wrote the, let me show you that. I wrote the conclusion for that. Edited by um, Ali Fuad Selvi and Bedretan Yazan, who are, who are both, they know Aya well, and they tend to be, because they're based in the U.S. now, they mm. tend to attend the TESOL conference and the American Association for Applied Linguistics. So this one, Language Teacher Education for Global English, as you see, ironically, this is in a series that Marzi's who I co-authored this article we're discussing today, Marzi Sadepur got her PhD with Farzad Sharifian, who wrote the first EIL book in the same series with multilingual matters. And Marzi, we were kind of surprised because when they first proposed this book, this is a series, uh, it's called the Rutledge, um, uh, Rutledge Advances in Teaching English as an International Language, they call Rat Tales. 
series, and I'm on the um, advisory board for this. But originally, they came out under an EIL title mm -hmm. for the you know call for papers, and then um, Farzad became ill <laughs> because Farzad was sort of anti-elf. He mm -hmm. felt <laughs> that elf was usurping some of the terrain that had been established by Larry Smith and others for EIL. And then Farzad became ill, and he asked Aya Matsuda to take over the, um, I guess, the editing, not the editing of this book, but, it, you know, as from the Rutledge point of view, the process of accepting the proposal of the book. Mm -hmm. And the the title changed, changed to Global Englishes. And I was rather surprised at that because I heard that Sandra McKay was going to write the conclusion originally. Mm. And I don't know what happened, but they came back to me and asked me to write the conclusion. And I, I, my conclusion is interesting because I go through a lot of this issue of the paradigms in the conclusion and talk about, I actually consulted, um, have you heard of Mario Saraceni? Saraceni? He's uh, in, Saraceni, um, yes. Yeah. He's in the UK. And I, I wrote a few emails, like I wrote to Marzi and I said, what do you think Farzad, you know, he, he passed away from colon cancer. What do you think Farzad would have thought of a book in his EIL series coming under the global English's rubric? And she said, over his dead body. <laughs> so, Quite literally. So Yeah. So then I wrote to a few people because, again, see, we like to see the pluralistic paradigms, as you said, you know, mm. how do you communicate this to the average teacher? We like to see them get, become more widespread in the TESOL or the TEFL field. And so does it really matter that much about the terminology? So I wrote to Mario, who's also on the board, and he said, mm. hey, Jim, we're all talking about the same thing. Mm. You know what I mean? So the differences are less important than getting overcoming a native speakerist orientation. So when Mario wrote that to me, I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do the conclusion. And, and because better to write a nuanced conclusion where you show um, some of the competing and complementary aspects than to just say, you know, like Henry Widowson wrote a thing in the very first Elf Journal about the inconvenience of established names or established theories. Right. And you know what I mean? If you're if you're hanging, mm. uh, if you're saying there's no global Englishes, it's only world Englishes, that can be counterproductive, I think. It, it's on. it's very it's not just in the in the naming of the philosophical paradigm, but also in the name. So you you bring up the, the concept of native speakerism, which I've recently interviewed a associate professor from Kansai University called mm -hmm. Anna Hoffmeyer. I think it was uh, Halliday, two thousand six, is mm -hmm. the, the the most famous paper on native speakerism. Mm -hmm. And and yet, more than fifteen years later, it still has, it still hangs over the general conception, particularly in places like Japan. So mm -hmm. not just world Englishes, global Englishes, English as an international language, English as a lingua franca, but the hyphenated varieties, British English, American English, Australian, mm -hmm. kind of dominates the discussion of people who are making decisions in, in the Department of Education. Uh, you know, particularly in terms of like textbooks. Uh, and I see the materials that I, I have two fairly young sons, one who is graduating to go to um, middle school next year. Mm -hmm. But I see the materials that are coming down and I can see the influence of these named varieties, particularly in terms of the lexus that's used and also the pronunciation norms that are used. And I asked Hofmeier-sensei, 
about the possibility that this is being slowly, maybe too slowly, but worked out of the system as people who were children in uh, elementary school 25 years ago are now in moving into positions of authority in the Department of Education. And do you think that there is a that this development that while we as academics within world the world English's paradigm can discuss between ourselves, you know, the terms that are being used, do you think that there is a wider acceptance that is kind of growing in because of the efforts made by uh, everyone we've mentioned today mm. to open it up and, and make it, you know, more pluricentric? Yeah, no, I think definitely um, it, there's a lag to it. But as you see, the, the names of the characters in the dialogues, as, especially with cultural aspects yep. and the naming of characters, probably the actual language in the dialogue might be more sort of school English mm. or, you know, written English style. And maybe you still find contractions, you know, used more than you would by non-native varieties. But at least that's why that othering concept is interesting. I think that's important to be aware of that. Mm. But interestingly, um, they might introduce other cultures, but still do it in a somewhat essentialist manner. And that's something that the teachers need to have their, you know, let's say they're introducing Indian food and something about Indian culture, but they have everyone wearing saris and doing namaste. And, you know, maybe not that many of the Indians in Delhi are, are going around in saris every day. So it sometimes it reinforces. That's why with intercultural studies, I think intercultural studies goes hand in hand for teachers, mm. maybe not high school and elementary school teachers, but university teachers. And maybe if high school teachers got a master's degree, the good thing about this book is it's targeting teacher trainers mainly. Hmm. So there's tons yeah. of, um, you know, things written by teacher training professors or how they teach people in their teacher training class. But um, I still find that Hofstede, you know, Hofstede with his six dimensions, uh, you know, masculine society, feminine society and hmm. risk taking society, risk averse society, individual, collective uh, and that is similar to um, E.T. Hall with his, you know, students love that high context, all these dichotomies like high yeah. context, low context, and those tend to essentialize too much. And even one of my colleagues here, my seminar in the fall with third year students is called Intercultural Communication Today. And the reason for the today is I use a textbook by Halliday rather than, and and so you know Aaron Meyer, you, you may have come across Aaron Meyer, who's this corporate trainer, mm. you know. But she's very, she's pretty much following in the Hofstede type, you know, one cult, one country equals one culture sort of tradition. And my students, with another professor, with a Japanese woman professor who is very good, they took an intercultural communication class, and she used Aaron Meyer a lot. And my student from Pakistan said she loved Aaron Meyer. And then, so I took out the Aaron Meyer book. The culture map. Yeah. This is this is her big thing, but you can find her on YouTube a lot. She, she does a lot of the corporate training because companies, mm -hmm. you know, they're sending people to India or Saudi Arabia. They feel they've got, you know, that there will be misunderstandings and they've got to prepare their people somehow. But I, 
you know, she, so the student said to me, we're, we're like trudging through holiday textbook, which is intercultural communication and ideology. Mm-hmm. So we're, and they're, my students are, there's only four of them in the seminar and they're, they're bored and it's difficult. And they're like, what is this about essentialism and everything? And then, you know, but we went back and I gave them a reading from uh, Aaron Meyer and it, it's kind of woke them up once they could put these next to each other. Mm. And they said, wow, you know, I have been essentializing. She's essentializing. And when I talk about, especially like the Italian students, exchange students that come to Chukyo, one guy said, oh, geez, I'm always, you know, when they come late, I'm always saying to them, oh, you Italians, you know, you're always late. You're never on time. And the two Italian girls kind of laugh. Mm. But they may feel uncomfortable or the the Italian girls themselves might say, oh, you know, we Italians, we are late. And they're sort of self-essentializing. So I think uh, in, in materials, it's going to be very important not only to broaden, you know, bring in the other Englishes and bring in the names, bring in characters from other cultures, but also to, to some extent to try to avoid this essentializing of the other cultures. Yeah, I mean, well, on that point, to out myself as someone who, who uses certain materials, uh, I do use, or I have used the Aaron McKay book in the past mm-hmm. because of that, that particular reason. She does two things in that book that kind of undermine her entire argument. The oh, first yeah. thing she does is she, when she's explaining how her culture map works mm-hmm. in, the, in the introduction, she talks about things and basically puts different cultures on a Gaussian curve so mm-hmm. that there is that they peak at a certain level on the map but mm-hmm. that there are obviously outliers on both sides mm-hmm. the other thing that she does is that in order to explain what she's doing she puts everything into anecdotal form uh-huh. so all of these stories that she's collected oh, yeah, either yeah. from her experience and or, or from <laughs> other people she is then is she's therefore de-essentializing whilst suggesting that everyone fits somewhere on this scale mm-hmm. so Approaching it from my background, which is law and economics, mm. I use, I take the econ, the behavioral economic model mm. of everyone being on this kind of curve, and also the fact that in law everyone is an individual, so you have to take each oh, case yeah. as merit. Yeah. And right. we and we break down. Uh, we, unfortunately, I don't have enough time to go through the entire mm. book, but we break down certain anecdotes, anecdotal mm. stories, and see how they relate to the personal experiences of the students in the class. And in that way, we we both kind of we understand that you know the stereotypes exist for a reason, uh, as you say. With the, yeah, that, I mean, there's there's a certain amount you can't just throw out everything, you know. But that the individual, when confronted with a stereotype, particularly by someone who doesn't have much experience of that culture, again could feel quite uncomfortable uh, in that situation. So we we kind of address it from from both from both angles mm-hmm. okay. that. Uh, you know that she's because she asserts it she's not necessarily wrong but here are the ways that you as an individual when interacting with an individual can um, do the thing that uh, is most important to me as someone who investigates L Mm -hmm. uh, do the negotiation and find out you know how much does this person Mm -hmm. um, act in this way by the way um, Um, did you know that Hona Nobuyuki had passed away. He was a pretty major figure, Nobuyuki Hona, 
from Aoyama University. Oh, and he's, he started the journal I edit Asian Englishes and um, he founded the Japan Association. I'll put a pitch here. Japan Association for Asian Englishes called JAFA and became president of it this year. But again, for teachers in Japan who might be interested in this kind of world Englishes perspective, uh, the JAFI conference will be happening again in July, probably on Zoom. And, you know, it's nice to have those like-minded people to discuss and exchange ideas with. So um, I'll, I'll put the words. So, yeah. You know, Hona, I have two recordings I could make available. He came when Katru and Smith came to Chukyo in 2003. We had the first conference of world Englishes in the classroom at Chukyo in 2003. And the Jaffai was on Saturday and Katru and his wife Yamana and Paru Nihalani. And they, they had Hona on a panel, um, a guy named Suzuki Takao, who was one of the first people um, in Japan to really uh, try to fight against the native speakerism. Uh, I think he was Keio, you know, and we had them all. Mm. And the fortunate thing was, the uh, microphone went straight to a tape, a cassette deck in the back mm. of the big lecture hall. So it's quite a clear recording of, of Hona. I have a 20 minute paper by him, but also a nice like a minute and 45 second answer to a question from the crowd. And then one of my students helped me, you know, through the ACE recording, the Zoom recorder, mm -hmm. I was able to um, digitalize this, download it to my computer. And then my, you know, my brilliant techie student helped me with this software called audacity audacity yes we actually use that to uh, yeah to edit yeah this i have podcast. these uh, they're they're clear as a bell you know of honna so maybe i'll give you those links and he, he talks about looking. that yeah he talks about that in elementary school in japan um it should you know what should the model be and he says mm. it's not american english or british english it's whatever the teacher's english is that should be the model so it's, it's interesting to hear those uh well let's, well let's investigate that for, mm. for a little bit then because um it literally is the the teacher is the the medium mm -hmm. through which english is transferred and so depending on either the uh, uh when we get to the university level kind of like the philosophical background of the the, the teacher and their ability of to teach then mm -hmm. down to people who are teaching elementary school students and it, it's part of the curriculum, but they, they don't get a great deal of training. I've, I've said in the past that um, back in 2009, 10, 11, when I was working in Beppu, mm. I was uh, coordinating a course um, to teach elementary school teachers how to teach English. I see. Oh. So, um, and so that's like 10 years mm. previously. Mm. And it was something that was funded by the local education board because they realized that although the Department of Education was requiring that the the, the age at which they started studying English was going to be mm. um, lowered, the proficiency of their teachers to to mm. teach English was not what they it's would a, have expected. A big worry for the teachers. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I, and and it, I think it does come down to the model, the focus, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with. Um, teachers who have to present a certain um, function of mm. the language, maybe vocabulary, maybe pronunciation. Mm. Um, if you were to be uh, recommending 
to the Department of Education if you were on a panel of how to uh, increase or, or to, um, you know, to pluricentralize the uh, teaching of English in Japan. Um, is there anyone that you would tell them to look towards or any material that you would request be included in the white paper or how, how, how could we do this? Especially too? that could be read in Japanese also. It could, it could be read in Japanese, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that yeah. would do two things at the same time. Mm -hmm. One, increase the, um, you know, the proficiency of the students, mm -hmm. uh, but also improve the confidence of the teachers that what they're doing is actually yeah. uh, helpful. Because the, the big thing that I noticed was it was mm -hmm. the confidence mm -hmm. that I don't, I can't speak English, so I will just use the materials that are given to me by the Department of Education. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think Hona would be one of the main people mm -hmm. because he produced, so he was very prolific with uh, Yuko Takeshita uh, co-authored mm -hmm. and he wrote some things with Andy. He has some textbooks with Andy Kirkpatrick, but mm -hmm. he has a lot of these, you know, here's one, Nihon Bunka O Ego De Setsume Suru. I can't read the last two kanji. Me neither. Um, he, this was his final book, English as a Multicultural Language in Asian Context. Now, oh, he I actually, have that one. He, he yeah. came out, yeah, that's a very good book. I reviewed yeah, that is. for World Englishes. Yeah, Nihonjin O you know, kangai kata o ego de setsume suru. Oh, that's the same book. It's the same book, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, quite prolific guy. Uh, Nihon bunka o ego de. There's one with an English translation. Kokusai gengo toshite no ego. So he's a great guy. And then Hino, the, another Nobuyuki. Um, Hino is a bit younger. He's closer to my age. And Hino also wrote he's written a fair amount in japanese so maybe for the you know junior high school teachers and elementary school teachers probably reading something in nihongo by Hona or hino i think would be very good you know um well he, he knows a previous um interview yeah. of the podcast and he i i think for two well actually three reasons one for his attitude towards um, uh, pluricent the pluricentric attitude mm -hmm. to Japanese and through so as you have um, you come listening to him I it's he's someone whose work I had read extensively in the past and uh, and to speak to him was quite uh, you know it was a, you know, something fantastic so um, to for example to speak to people who I have cited so many times. That's the whole point of the podcast, Lost in Citations. So to speak to yourself, to speak to Professor Hino, Professor Jenkins, Professor Matsuda, um, have been very, very enlightening uh, uh, experiences. Um, to, to kind of finish up our uh, interview today, um, do you think that there is a need for... We, we talk about umbrella terms and how uh, they can encompass many of the others, uh, many of the other terms that are in uh, world Englishes and sociolinguistic views. But that there is continued disagreement, continued um, uh, development in this area. Do you think there is a need for a, a, a single umbrella term? 
or a new umbrella term or do you think that the field be, is kind of strengthened by the discussion that is motivated by these different terms mm. that's a very good question maybe that's what keeps it so vibrant is mm. the ongoing discussion and you know that in the, near the end of this article we're discussing from asian english is about the complementary or competing um for this book oh sorry i had turned off my camera because i thought the internet was getting weak but in this book we talked about um in my that's where i first wrote this little three box progression right. which is also in the article and so what i say there is that the professors in charge of the teacher training programs have to have the nuanced understanding of ongoing research and worlding and world images is very vibrant at mm. the basic research level still it's been revitalized recently um so i think those professors have to have that but then i say okay then the new teachers perhaps will have a, a slightly less detailed knowledge of this but then when they are in you know if they're in greece and they're teaching english to elementary school kids and they want to give them a bit of this pluricentric approach then perhaps you know using global Englishes as an umbrella term makes sense i don't know but you know, certain of the world <laughs> the problem is you know people forget there's a forgetting of where it all comes from and that's that's i think that's what upsets kingsley bolton so much you know that that, that forgetting would tend to happen yeah i mean i for one i, I have no problem with you know using world english as, as that as that term mm. i i i'm constantly concerned particularly because m most of my work uh, as it relates to you know my my day-to-day -day work my research mm -hmm. is something that i do uh because it's 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 something that interests me mm -hmm. and and i hope adds to the field in in some incremental way but uh by having different terms that are loosely defined even by the people who are using them there's a possibility of a kind of a dilution of the message that's right um and but i i also see the positive side it's it's this you know flip side of the same coin i think that it, it means that people are talking about it mm -hmm. people are uh, interacting and i don't see um uh, or maybe you can inform me of something that's that's going on in the background but I don't see many of the uh, argumentative and, and, you know, almost, uh, you know, uncomfortable interactions that I saw when I when I first got into the field in, mm. in the early 2000s with people like Robert Phillotson and uh, Professor Jenkins mm. having to write defensive articles mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, English as lingua franca, fact mm. or fiction. Um, and uh that maybe it's it, the field is coming closer together mm -hmm. but in this uh i don't know um, academic detente mm -hmm. uh there are still areas that you know we, we can find energy and, and keep this momentum moving forward yeah. maybe they've agreed to disagree <laughs> less um... i don't know it, it is is there is there is there an argument? Is there a fight going on in the background? Not, that I've not, no, I think you're. So. I think you're right that people are accepting, and let's see that the chips fall where they may, and let's all continue working. And you, you see a lot of overlaps. So, a lot of the 
people working in elf especially came from world Englishes and eil hmm. especially the the expanding circle scholars such as nikos but nikos was elf from the start but people like uh you know yasmin byert yes. i would you know she's in turkey i would always see yasmin at the world Englishes conference and he know was at the world Englishes conference but as elf emerged people like myself and he know and yasmin and um um, Enrique Lourdes from Spain, you see all Nikos, all these scholars from uh, a lot of the Italian scholars. Mm. Um, I can't think of a name right now, but there's a lot of Italians working in Elf. Uh, Enrico Grazzi and people like that. Luciano, uh, I can't think of her family name right now, but yeah, very interesting to see all the expanding circle scholars jumping into Elf. And, you know, people like actually. The interesting thing is Ali Fuad and Bedretten uh, just put out a call. No, it's Ali Fuad and Nicola Galloway just mm. put out a call for papers for a new book, which is going to encompass. It's going to have WE section, EIL section and Global Englishes section. So mm. I think Ali Fuad, I give him credit for recognizing that there's this debate and letting, you know, providing a forum in one new book for different scholars to work things out so that should be um should be an interesting book coming out maybe next year end of next year so yeah maybe i i spoke to professor galloway uh -huh. last year uh, -huh. uh before she was going to give the plenary speech at chalt uh -huh. oh good um and um again someone whose work i've quoted extensively and also i've put into uh i talked with her about using her uh, and the work that she did with um, Heath Rose yes. um, about listening journals is something that is the, the bedrock of my intensive English course. That the students oh, have to go out there, find their own materials, report on it. What do you find and what do you think about it? What's your opinion mm -hmm. of it? So it's an um, important part of this going forward. So well, that's why, you know, in, yeah, in this uh, article we discussed today, I definitely give credit to the global Englishes people for fleshing out the pedagogical parts and, and you know certain tables and things that they create where they're comparing the nativist approach versus the g global english's approach they're useful things that you know they put more effort into uh really writing down what the mm. pedagogical implications uh, would be than other people had so that you know they deserve a certain area uh useful area they've carved out so to finish the interview, would you would you say that the answer to your question, competing or complementary, oh, yeah. would be complementary? You're going to put me on the spot here. Mm -hmm. I have to take away the single quotes now. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I would say they're they're complementary, but there still is a certain risk of, of people oversimplifying. But but that's what the next ten years or twenty years will show us. I guess. I'm I looking forward. I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you very much for your time today, uh, Professor D'Angelo. Um, the paper we've been discussing is World Englishes and Global Englishes, Competing or Complementary Paradigms. Uh, that was uh, published in uh, Asian Englishes uh, in June of 2022. Thank you very much for your time today, Professor. And I have every belief that we will speak again in the future. Yeah, we did number 65, and this might be a number 130, so maybe <laughs> number 198 or something like that will be the next one. Thank I'll you so much, uh, Chris. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com.
Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.